first episode of We've Got Next, a podcast for kids by a kid. For our first episode, we're going to talk about police and policing, which is a really important issue right now. People are talking about it. It's at the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movement that has been amplified by the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, among the murders of many other innocent black people. If when I say police, you conjure a really good, positive image, you are most likely white and have watched a lot of cop TV shows. And I am white and I have watched a lot of cop TV shows. So I think for us, we need to understand that those TV shows, the cops are always the good guys. There's an episode in Law and Order that I'm thinking of right now that I watched where like a cop shoots an innocent black guy and like the way you're supposed to feel is that you're supposed to feel bad for the cop about being accused of not doing his job perfectly and that's obviously not right and not real. So I encourage you to do more research. Police brutality has been very prevalent, prevalent in the nation's eye recently. It's always been a thing. It's been even worse sometimes in the past. But right now it's being because of like viral mi- videos on social media, we're seeing it in a more real and upfront way that that is hard to be OK with. But a lot of the things that I've heard said and that have been said on Fox News and by people I know is that, OK, well, a couple black people died by the police, but the police were just doing their job. And there were so many black people killed in Chicago by other black people, oh, you don't care about them? And it's like, okay, just stop. Like, if someone's saying that, like, they're wrong. Like, they're annoying and they're wrong. Black people, one in every 100,000 black people will be killed by the police in their lifetime. That should tell you, that stat should tell you that this is not a little problem that has been amplified by social media or something like that and, like, we feel bad for one person. No, this is, like, a huge deal Black people, especially black men, are really being affected by this and need to think about this all the time. Black people are two and a half more likely to be killed by the police than white Americans are. That's staggering. That's how our implicit bias seeps into policing and how it's super detrimental. And like, it's policing in general. Like, police killed over a thousand people in the US last year, but police in Japan killed zero people police in the uk killed three people our police is different and worse it's not keeping us safe it's putting us in danger and those racial disparities i just talked about this is why you need to be able to say black lives matter if whenever you say black lives matter somebody comes back at you with all lives matter first of all it's kind of a silly debate because we're not really talking about the issues at hand but if somebody can't say black matter black lives matter why can't they say that why, why are they so defensive about their whiteness that they can't say that black lives matter? And if they can't say black lives matter, they need to understand that black people right now, their lives, their lives don't matter to police. Black people are two and a half more likely to be killed by police than white ones. That shows that black lives aren't being, aren't mattering, but they need to. So this is why we need to address this problem. And We have to get over our defensiveness and sensitivity and just talk about the problem in a real way that can be productive. So this, these disparities with police killing more people in the U S than in any other country and 
black people being disproportionately affected by the police, specifically compared to white people. Like, this didn't come out of nowhere. There's a racist history of policing. Um, after slavery ended, this is a quote from literally a man who used to own slaves. This is from uh, the fairly recent book, The New Jim Crow. The quote is, We have the power to pass stringent police laws to govern the Negroes. This is a blessing, for they must be controlled in some way or white people cannot live among them. That is proof that the institution of policing has and continues to be for the purpose of holding down black people, specifically. The origin of American law enforcement comes from slave patrols and enforcing racial segregation. So now you're probably thinking, okay, we get it. Everybody 100 years ago was racist. That's why my grandpa's like that, whatever. First of all, your grandpa shouldn't be racist. Talk to him about that. But this is also fairly recent. Um, a lot of the modern problem about policing comes from the 60s and 70s. And it's because of law and order politics. Politicians in the 60s and 70s, namely Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, and next time somebody tries to like idealize Ronald Reagan, just like talk to them about this because like he's not Jesus. Um, so law and order politics basically happened because the crime rates were really high in the U.S. And I know the crime rates were really high in New York City and they were really high in the U.S. So and people were scared of crime, justifiably. So what politicians did was in order to get elected, they told people that they were going to stop crime and how they were going to do it was by this thing called broken windows policing, where they would be super harsh on the smallest little things, like broken windows, and try to like get people in jail for that because the idea was that little offenses lead to big offenses. So, but that idea was not about enforcing, was not about like getting white people in trouble for doing the smallest crimes. That's like super racially targeted. There's a, if you read Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, um, We Were Eight Years in Power, he talks about how members of Richard Nixon's and Ronald Reagan's staff knew that everything they were saying was racially targeted bullshit. Like, they knew it wasn't real. They knew it was playing to white people's fears about black people. This is, like, continued, like, Bill Clinton, who was the president in the 1990s, his answer to everything, just like his predecessors, was, oh, let's just add more cops. Let's enforce little things. Let's add more cops. That doesn't work because crime rates, interestingly, and sort of against what you would think, crime rates are more related to the economy and unemployment than they are to enforcement of crime and the number of cops. So instead of addressing this problem by trying to lift up communities, we are pushing them down by investing in cops instead of investing in social services. And something that proves this is that annual increases in city level police hiring are more correlated to rise in their budget overall than they are to specific rises in crime. So I know that was like a lot of words, but basically when like you'd think that like when crime goes up, okay, maybe we think adding more cops is going to put it down. That's argue that, that you can argue that, but like okay, maybe that would work. But that's not they're not adding more cops when the crime goes up. They're adding more cops when they have more money just because there's trying to find something to spend their money on. And the reason that they're doing that is for political reasons because it's politically popular and it basically always has been just add, to just add more police. Because people are like, oh, I like the police. So they just add more police with no reason. 
and adding so many police isn't protecting us as I think has come to a lot of people's attention with the video of George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta when cops were like tackling this drunk guy on the ground and shooting him as he runs away for no reason. What's become apparent is that cops aren't protecting us. They're putting a lot of people in danger, specifically black and, black and brown people. And so now you're probably thinking, all right, but like not all cops are bad, like just a few bad apples, but like some, some cops are good. And what I would say to that and what you should say to that when other people make that point is that saying that there are bad apples excuses a system that was built upon racism and continues to have inequality embedded within the system. Also, if there were a few poisonous hamburgers at Five Guys, you wouldn't go to Five Guys. Like, that's... Just because there are because there are a few bad things, like imagine if you were gonna get on an airplane and you found it like, oh yeah, some airline pilots like to get drunk and crash the plane during their flights. Like you wouldn't go on the plane. Like bad apples is not an excuse, it's the problem. So we need to address the bad cops and we need to address the system that encourages and enables black, black cops. Here is a video of a police chief talking about how he would never be punished for doing anything because of how powerful the police unions are. If they deem that this training is in violation and they're on their own time and they want to attend it, I'm going to encourage officers to do it. I myself will be the first one to do it. If I would be disciplined, it would never be upheld. Okay, so now let's talk about solutions, what some protesters have been talking about. So there are two categories of reform. There's small, immediate reforms, and then there's large structural change. The small immediate reforms are about things like eight can't wait, which it has eight specific policy changes that if implemented everywhere, data shows that police violence could be decreased by 70%. And those are things like banning chokeholds, having a higher standard for when the police is allowed to shoot somebody, <laughs> like simple things. And one of those things, one of the most important things is getting rid of qualified immunity, which makes it easier to hold cops accountable. Qualified immunity protects cops from being held accountable for their job, but cops should be held accountable. Right now, we're treating cops at a lower standard than we're treating everybody else, but we're paying cops. Cops should be held at a higher standard. They should be better than everybody else. But, and there's a bill, there's a bill in the Senate right now pushed by Democrats, namely um, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, which is similar to 8 Can't Wait, has some good proposals. Joe Biden, who's running for president as a Democrat, has some similar his plan is similar to the bill in the senate right now unfortunately it probably at this point looks like it won't pass because republicans are pushing their own bill which basically just says that they did something without actually ever doing anything which should piss you off um but okay obviously something should be done at that level but because of what i've talked about with the history of policing you might be thinking that wait Maybe we shouldn't be just focused on small things. Maybe we should be focused on the big things, big changes. And something, if you don't think that, something I would add is that only 5% of crimes are violent. One out of 20 crimes are violent. And we're asking police to take care of so much. Here's an audio clip of a police officer in Dallas talking about how much police are asked to do and how irrational that is. We're asking cops to do too much in this country. We are. We're just asking us to do too much. Every societal failure 
We put it off on the cops to solve. Not enough mental health funding. Let the cop handle it. Not enough drug addiction funding. Let's give it to the cops. Here in Dallas, we got a loose dog problem. Let's have the cops chase loose dogs. So we're asking police to take care of homelessness, drug addiction, mental health, when police should be focused on solving the big violent crimes and we shouldn't be encouraging interactions between police who have military grade weapons with people with mental health mental health issues and homeless people people who are addicted to drugs like that's a recipe for disaster and it's just like not rational so you've probably heard the mantra like hashtag defund the police about a big structural change when you hear defund the police you think that oh that's terrible we're no more police when i call 911 who's going to answer so many people are like, oh, they're like memes of like people like calling 911 and the officers like check your privilege. But like that's dumb. And that's being pushed by like Republicans who don't want to see any change happen at all. But defund the police is means the police have so much money. Let's take some of that money and invest it in communities. Let's take some of that money and give resources to people with mental health issues who are homeless, who are addicted to drugs, so that they're not having interactions with the police and we can give them something that will actually help them. So that's why I think that large structural change is needed because we need to consider what the job of police is and are they the right people to be doing it. Rethinking the police isn't radical, once you really look at the issues, rethinking the police is common sense. So I hope that you've learned something from this. I hope that now you can address your racist uncle who says all lives matter. Um, and I hope that you understand why it's frustrating to a lot of people when people like cling to the mantra, like defund the police, like, oh, no more police, or oh, those are radicals, or oh, that's a terrible slogan, because it's not about that. It's about the policies, and the policies make sense. It's common sense. Now I'm going to interview a former assistant district attorney, prosecutor, named Lucy Lang, who currently teaches at John Jay. Lucy, thank you for joining us. So why did you become an, an assistant district attorney or a prosecutor, and like, what is that? The United States is unique in the world in that we elect our local prosecuting agencies. There are 2,400 elected DAs across the country, and they process the vast majority of criminal cases that come through the system nationally. Prosecutors' offices, DAs' offices, can range from one person, just the single local elected person who handles all criminal matters, to an office of close to a thousand lawyers, like the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. I served for many years in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which consists of about 500 lawyers who handle the majority of criminal matters that arise in the borough of Manhattan. Each of New York City's five boroughs has their own district attorney, and there are two federal prosecutor's offices in New York City as well the Southern District of New York and the Eastern District of New York, and they have jurisdiction over different kinds of crimes, generally crimes that happen in multiple jurisdictions or that are in violation of a federal statute. So the Manhattan District Attorney's Office handles the vast majority of street level 
um, and domestic type crimes that happen on the island of Manhattan. I went there directly from law school in part because I had lost a dear friend to murder when I was in law school and watched as her family struggled with the system. It was a particularly heartbreaking case because she was killed by her mentally ill brother. And so the family was both on the side of the victim in the case and on the side of the person who had been charged. And I saw that the, their primary point of contact with the system was through the prosecutor's office. I saw the ways in which in, in moments that made them feel like they were being heard and served and in moments it made them confused and feel like they didn't understand what was happening and weren't being listened to. So I saw a real opportunity there for a prosecutor's office to help support people in the most vulnerable times in their lives, both when they've been victimized and when a loved one has been charged with a crime. And it was that experience that brought me to the district attorney's office out of law school in large part. So do you think, I noticed that when you were the district attorney, and correct me if this is wrong, um, some website said that when you were the assistant district attorney that it was like, you just did violent crimes like murder and domestic violence. Is that true? The way most district attorney's offices work is that you start handling fairly low level crime. And then as you get promoted, you handle more serious crime. So I did handle some low level matters in the early stages of my career and then advanced to handling more violent matters as the time passed. Oh, uh, okay. So do you think that, because when people like me and like in the, think about like the problems with policing, I, I always like knew that there was like some low level stuff that was like, should that really be happening? Something that I've learned recently is that nationwide, the, um, like the rates for like catching murderers is like lower than I was led to believe on law and order. Um, so like, is that the case in Manhattan? And like, is that like, should that be expected? Or is something that's like something like sort of going wrong? Julian, there are so many questions embedded into that question. It's a really smart thing to ask. And I think that young people like you are really to be thanked for the amount of light that is being shown on the criminal justice system right now in asking adults to account for the ways in which the system isn't necessarily serving everyone uh, fairly and also that people have, uh, don't have full information about the system and many people have misimpressions about the system and that is a, a real failing because of course these are jobs that at their core are about public service and are designed to serve the public but that requires that the public understand what's happening and, um, and have accurate information. So, in, uh, in New York County, violent crime has decreased tremendously over the course of the past uh, 15 years and beyond. There has been um, a modest uptick since COVID-19 began, and it's too soon to say what the causes of that are, uh, but I'm hopeful as we emerge from the crisis 
that things will stabilize and go back down. I think that there are many different reasons for the decline in violent crime in New York City, and it's almost impossible in many cases to draw causal connections between them. But we have seen that over the years, as we have stopped prosecuting more and more low-level offenses, including marijuana possession or jumping the turnstile in the subway, um, and, th and those things have been in really in response to public outcry and to changing norms in New York City, that that does not seem to have had a significant impact on violent crime. So this is a system that is learning as it goes. And I, I'm really hopeful that what, part of what we learned from COVID is that having a system that doesn't um, aggressively prosecute every case and having a system that is very thoughtful about who ends up being detained and how we ultimately impose sentences on people who commit harms in their communities doesn't go back to business as usual, but rather really um, imagines a different future in which the criminal legal system can better serve a wider range of people and, and hopefully not be the agency that is responsible for handling issues like mental health and substance use and other things that are better handled by social workers and educators rather than lawyers and law enforcement. Yeah, that's a great point. I, yeah, I've thought a lot about how like, like we just ask police to do like the police and like prosecutors to do like so much, like whenever there's a problem in our society, we're like, all right, police, you handle it. And that's sort of like a recipe for something not going well. Cause like no one unit can like do it, like solve every single problem. It just doesn't really make sense. Um, that's exactly right, Julian. So do you, I have some questions since you're like a prosecutor, um, in your like experiences as a prosecutor, like, I'm not really trying to phrase this, but like, what are your thoughts on like, like how much like time somebody gets in jail for like certain offenses? Because as a prosecutor, you come at it from like a certain way, but I know that like, I don't know if mandatory minimums are still a thing, but I know that sometimes like you would have been like held in by some like, constraints that were built in. Have you ever encountered something like that? Sure, I'll start by saying that I don't serve as a prosecutor now. I've spent the past two years at John Jay College of Criminal Justice working on reform nationwide. And one of the exciting things about that has been seeing prosecutors across the country try to take on some of the challenging legal problems that you're describing, like mandatory minimums. And many jurisdictions do have mandatory minimums for particular charges but it is often up to the prosecutor to determine what charge to bring. And that decision is made knowing sometimes that it carries a mandatory minimum. So prosecutors have a tremendous amount of discretion and that has been historically part of a prosecutor's mandate as a minister of justice. And part of what we are seeing now is that people are asking for something different from their prosecutors than they, they did um, when violent crime was much higher. You know, people, a much more diverse range of voices are being heard from. We are seeing the ways in which aggressive use of legal tools like mandatory minimums in drug crimes and other crimes 
disproportionately impacted uh, black and brown communities, uh, disproportionately disadvantaged poor communities, and prosecutors are starting to rethink how they do the public service that is core to their mission. So we're seeing more prosecutors start to build what are known as alternative to incarceration programs or diversion programs. So services that support people and try to get at root causes of problems rather than sentencing folks to prison. And as someone who has spent the past several years teaching in prisons, I'm particularly uh, moved by and excited by the prospect of these efforts really significantly decreasing the unconscionable number of people we have in prison in the United States today. Yeah, that sounds that sounds amazing. Um, okay, so now I sort of explained to you earlier. I want to play a game. So recently, in my process of like researching for this podcast episode, I learned and I learned a lot about like weapons that the police have that were given to them from military surpluses. So I explained to you earlier the game. I'm gonna name two weapons. It's gonna be really short. Name two weapons. You tell me which one police use and which one is from Fortnite, the video game. Okay, but I have to start with a uh, disclaimer, which is that I've never played Fortnite, so I have no uh, prior basis of knowledge to bring to, to this game on that score. So I hope that you're not going to judge me too harshly, Julian. Okay, that's good. The first one's easy. Okay, so for the first one, bandage bazooka and tear gas. Tear gas is a police tool, and bandage bazooka sounds like a crazy weapon, uh, and it must be from Fortnite. Yes, correct. Um, the next one is a tank and a fishing rod. Is a fishing rod like an actual fishing rod, or it's the name of a weapon? It's actually a fishing rod. Um, well, gosh. I happen to know that, crazily enough, some police departments do have decommissioned military tanks. So I'm going to go with tanks or police. But I wouldn't be surprised if some departments have fishing rods, too. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. <laughs> I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. Okay. The next one uh, made news like a month ago um, from Connecticut. Uh, a port-a-fort and drones. A port-a-fort? Yeah. Um, well, I've never heard of a port-a-fort, and I know that there has been use of drone surveillance by some police departments. So I'm going to go with drones for a police uh, tool and port-a-fort for Fortnite. Yes, correct. So what's a port-a-fort? Okay, a port-a-fort, actually, it's not in this version of the game because the game, like, changes every few weeks. So basically, you carry it with you, and you throw it down, and, like, it's like a portable fort, and, like, automatically it builds you a fort. I want that. No, it's very cool. It's very cool. Actually, I think Port-a-Fort might be a tool that the Department of Homeless Services could use. That's a good point. That's a good point. I think that's true. Okay. Work on that, okay? Yeah, I will. Last one. Think about this one. Helicopters and grenade launchers. I'm worried that this is a trick question. It is a trick question. It is. All right. <laughs> I mean, I, I did see some of the, um, the sad use of grenade launchers in response to some uh, protests nationally by police departments. And I think that the use of that kind of weaponry in particular in those circumstances really reflects this core need to change policing 
culture away from one that responds with a kind of warrior mentality and more to one that responds uh, as a, from a sense of serving as public guardians. And the use of that kind of weaponry really undermines that, undermines the trust between communities and law enforcement that uh, has, has long been absent in, in many communities, in particular black and brown communities. So I think that as we are scrutinizing policing in America, we also will have to think long and hard about who gets access to those weapons and under what circumstances they should be permitted to be used. Yeah. So I like with those weapons, obviously I chose some of the more absurd contrasts and examples, but like I think it's really easy to paint those weapons. Like I obviously see like, okay, I'd rather my local police department not have a tank or tear gas, but like are there really situations where those are necessary? And maybe people people like outside the system just don't really see that. Look, policing is a very difficult job. And we have to bear in mind that as much transformative change it is really needed in policing in the United States right now, that they also are historically the people who are asked to run into a collapsing building when a plane hits and the rest of us get to run out. So whether tanks are necessary uh, is kind of outside the issue as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you can imagine instances like Waco or really egregious um, circumstances where perhaps there's a need for, for significant um, weaponry, but I don't think that as a general matter, any local police department is likely to need that kind of equipment. And we really need to focus on equipping police officers to de-escalate situations, to call in folks with social work and other kinds of expertise in mental health and the issues that often give rise to a police being brought to a situation. And I think that it is possible and actually almost mandatory that those changes happen now because of how focused the public rightly is on the tragic impact that traditional law enforcement has had uh, on communities nationally. And I'm grateful to you for raising these issues, especially with teenagers and people your age think that we are counting on all of you to help lead us into a new era of collaboration and thoughtful leadership in criminal law and in social justice generally. So thank you for doing your important work and for letting me add my voice to the conversation. Yeah, um, of course, thank you. So my last question, um, so I, you don't have to answer this one, but I noticed um, as I was Googling you, there's nothing that you haven't done. You were a prosecutor and then you also now work for John Jay about changing the system. There are like, you got like three awards in the last few years. You wrote like a children's book. You've been pub published in the New York Times and the Atlantic. Like, 
You're very impressive. Have you considered running for office? It's a, a, a very fine question, Julian. I think that it's critically important that people who care about social change do put themselves in positions of power to effectuate that change. And I admire folks who are willing to put themselves out there and do that. Um, where I am right now, I feel like I have an, an incredible good fortune to be getting a masterclass in leadership and in change, both from the communities I work with and from some of the prosecuting agencies and other government officials who I work with. So um, I'm thrilled with where I am at John Jay right now. Okay. If you run for office and I'm 18, I will definitely vote for you, okay? <laughs> Thank you very much, Julian. That makes my day. <laughs> I'm glad. All right, thank you so much. Take good care of yourself. Rethinking the police is not radical, it's common sense. So I hope that you've learned, I hope you've learned something from this. Um, I encourage you to look up videos, learn more, do some reading, read that book, the, the New Jim Crow that I talked about earlier. If you have any questions, feel free to DM me on Instagram at We've Got Next Pod. <laughs>